0: Hi, I'm Madvi Romani. And I'm Rena Grobe. And this is Misinformed, the podcast that keeps you aware of feminist news and culture the easy way.
1: So, Madvi, what are we talking about today? Today
0: we are talking about Susan Sontag's On Women. It's a collection of Her essays on women, which were written about actually 50 years ago in the 60s and 70s. And we just had our first book club offline in Berlin to discuss this. It was so amazing. It was really great. And what I really liked was first of all, it was all women. And I have to say that when a bunch of women get together, it's Always a bit different from when there's a man in the space. Something else happens. And I think you and I have talked about this before, Rina, about like, there's a really special vibe you get in women's toilets in clubs, for example, (laughs) where women are all like talking to each other, opening up to each other and then sharing lipstick and stuff like that. I'm not one of these like defenders of women's toilets, but there is this special vibe of like women only spaces. And one of the things that our book club was prompted by was, in fact, this book and one of Susan Sontag's passages in which she says women have to learn how to talk to each other, how to organise with each other and how to communicate in a women's only space because the oppressor can never free the oppressed. So it's up to us as secondary citizens in a patriarchal society to gather and also organise ourselves and our thoughts and share our experiences and find our community and things like that. And one of the things that we did not discuss before was, would this be actually women's only space? And yesterday we put it up to a kind of vote and it was unanimously, yes, I don't think any men should be in this space. Even though we do have some really great men who listen to the podcast, we have great men who support the podcast, who share it, who are feminists, but that was a really interesting thing that came out of yesterday's meeting.
1: I once worked on an all-female film set, and it was all-female behind and in front of the camera, with one exception, there was one man who had a small role in front of the camera, and I you not know this, used to be in film, used to work on sets. And it was such a different feeling having all women on set. Like it's still stressful, you know, it's a job, but you felt so much more comfortable and protected. And I don't know, it was a completely different feeling. And I think that all of the things that we've done with our disobedient dinners, we've sort of always tried to recreate this feeling of of the women's toilets. And I think, yeah. It's a beautiful thing, and I'm very much in support of it. I have brilliant feminist men in my life, but it's really important, like you say.
0: Um, Yeah, and on the other hand, also not to say that, you know, women are the best ever. In Susan Sontag's book herself, she says she's often surprised by the misogyny that successful women display also towards other women. And in this book, I felt that a little bit with her herself, not misogyny, but a A lack of patience, I would say. You know, for example, in her first essay in this book where she's talking about on aging and how, you know, women never reveal their age and go to the toilets to powder their noses and, like, you know, wear makeup and cover up, you know, because there is only one beauty standard for women and that is that of the girl, whereas men are allowed to be boys and men and we're just allowed to be girls. And she calls women who try and keep up this girliness moral idiots, But that's also, I feel like, the frustration of a really intelligent person (laughs) just trying to be like, can everyone please stop this nonsense? And then just related to this point, I was saying actually stylistically, I really like her style and the strength of her voice, her opinions. She's never, uh, oh, maybe, I don't know. She's like, this is the opinion, this is the thought, it's fully backed up. I defend my position, even when feminists like uh Adrian Rich are criticising her, she defends it, even if an interviewer asks her about, oh, you said this once, and then you said, you know, the exact opposite later. And she's like, well, no, I was just developing the same sort of idea in different ways or whatever. She's so confident in her opinion, which seems almost... Masculine in its confidence.
1: Yeah, so we talked about this yesterday, right? You know, maybe some women, when they are in the corporate world or in like they try to emulate masculine energy to sort of be successful, or they have this idea that they need to be kind of masculine to be successful. And I think this is a really interesting thing. And I was sort of thinking about, okay, the women that I know, like for example, in the workplace how they communicate and who is, you know, communicates in a way that is seen as maybe abrasive or rude or who communicates in a way that is seen as sort of authoritative or professional, I think, in a way. I'm thinking about, like, do I perceive certain people as being more masculine? Do I perceive certain people as not being necessarily masculine? And I think it's really interesting because the person that I can think of who speaks with the most professionalism and the most competence I've never interpreted her as masculine, which is very interesting. She does have a very feminine appearance, so, like, she'll often wear pearl necklaces and, like, pink clothes, so she kind of leans into the pink identity a bit. Do you think
0: she's leaning into it, or do you think she's balancing out and making herself acceptable on one hand with her appearance? Because these are things we all do, you know? Like, if you're way too direct and confident as a woman you get punished for it. It's a thing. The research has shown, you know, like that, that it happens. So then to balance out your authoritative confidence, maybe you'll wear pearls and pink.
1: So I've had this conversation with her hilariously, actually, because she was mentioning that she was going to a professional event and she was just like, not in the mood to like, put on a dress and do her hair. And I was like, Well, why would you do that? Just wear what you want to wear. And so she's like, all right, I'm just going to wear what I want to wear. So she went with like pants, pink high tops and her pearl necklace. And that I think is just like her standard uniform. I'm sure that maybe somewhere along the line, it was a strategic idea. She put thought into what like how she was dressing and how she was interacting. A hundred percent, because I do think that she comes across as very intimidating, specifically to men. I think she definitely is. It might be subconscious, but it is definitely strategic choice she's made. But yeah, so I was like thinking about the women in my life who I know who maybe holds more masculine, who holds more feminine energy, and how are they perceived, or how do I perceive them? And you know, relating back to what you were saying about Susan Sontag and maybe like kind of what the discussion was last night at the book club a little bit of do women have to hold masculine energy in life in a corporate setting to be taken seriously and one of the lovely members of the book club she mentioned a story about how many years ago she ran into a woman who at the time told her you know when women talk at the office they hang on the wall whereas men stand strong in the middle you know and you have to like work to get around them and so she told her like don't hang off the wall
0: and she also said since then Uh, When she was in her 20s, she's taken that advice and it helped her a lot in her career to stand in the middle of the corridor and take up space. And the advice there was actually like, why are you doing a certain thing? Is it to take up less space? Or is it because of you're genuinely just trying to be nice as women are and there's nothing wrong with that either? Yeah. And I would also make a distinction between like masculine energy Mm -hmm. and Patriarchal values. Mm -hmm. So, like, the office is a space in which maybe status and competitiveness or a certain type of confidence is the standard. But should we be going with all those things because those are kind of toxic? Or should we be going with things, you know, like a lot of women say, for example, I think, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then they advise not to say I think, just say the thing. But like, I think demonstrates a sort of positive value, which is you are acknowledging that you have your subjective point of view and that maybe somebody else has a subjective point of view and you're inviting more of a negotiation and a conversation and a collaboration, right? But there is a difference between like, I think, patriarchal and also masculine energy because i think we should all as human beings be able to inhabit uh, channel all these different energies regardless of our gender and not be punished or you know seen as weird for it but also are we doing something
1: toxic in this is a different thing also i think there's
0: nuance there between those
1: two things This also led into a conversation last night where I mentioned that like whenever I write a Slack message, I feel the need to put all these smiley faces everywhere and really pad out the way I talk with things. And I've noticed that the majority of my male colleagues do not do this. And so I was thinking, should I take a more masculine approach? And then one of the wonderful girls in the book club mentioned, well, why is it that I have to change or women have to change? Maybe it should be that men should change the way they're writing. It was an interesting thought because I've never thought about it like that before. And I've kind of always thought about, ah, oh, you know, it's the women use I think, or we use smileys or we're, you know, hey, I have a quick question. Like the way we communicate in the office or in life or in corporate settings or whatever it is, is like with so much empathy. I mean, obviously not always, I'm generalizing, but, you know, with empathy and, and we're kind of socialized and taught to never be in the way, and all these things. And of course, there are some things about that that need to be changed. But at the same time, why do we need to change to be more abrasive or to be more harsh or to be more direct? Why can't it be that actually a patriarchal society needs to change so that we all treat each other with more empathy and love?
0: On this note, another book came up quite a few times, actually. It's called Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. And it just basically goes through how most data collected on anything is, like, all based on men, because women are not seen as human, I guess. Mm -hmm. And so, like, you know, their data is not taken into account when it comes to everything, like, from clinical tests for drugs, for temperature in offices. I remember all the women I ever knew used to go into the offices and have to wear extra things because, you know, the temperature is set more men's body temperature than when women's you know what they feel comfortable in so yes now that women i mean women were always in the world but where they're allowed to occupy more space in the society built by men yes but society does need to acknowledge that we're there and we're also fully human and we're 50 percent of the population and needs to change around us too
1: yeah absolutely One of the things that came up a couple of times last night when we were discussing this book, you know, her first essay is on the double standard of aging and then she has an essay on beauty and stuff. And I mean, she wrote a lot of this in the 70s and I think what really stood out to all of us, just going to generalize, but sort of, you know, was a point of discussion was this was written about 50 years ago and it's kind of sad to see how not a lot really has changed. Like obviously there has been progress and there has been changes, so on and so forth, of course. We're in a different place than we were 50 years ago. But at the end of the day, for women's struggles and the obstacles we have, it's sad that we're in the year 2024, and a lot of us could still relate to this. You would have hoped that 50 years later, we would have moved on. And yet...
0: Yeah, I think two things stood out about the fact that this was written 50 years ago. One was, for example, she talks about, say, abortion and when she talks about abortion rights she's saying well in 20 or 30 years women will then all have the right to abortion but that still won't solve the fundamental structural systematic position of women it just makes their lives a bit better and sort of is not good for any way a total radical system change which is what's needed to solve the problem of women as secondary citizens but then when we're all reading that we're like no no we haven't solved the problem of abortion. In fact, we're going backwards on this, which is quite interesting. And then the other thing is, for example, there are certain things that men in her book and in her vision are sort of exempt from. For example, this thing about, you know, standards of beauty and ageing, which they still apply to women more than ever. I think, like, cosmetic surgery and Instagram has made this prison For women, the pressure for women has grown because of certain modern things. But not only has it grown for women; it's grown for men as well. And you can see this, like in a consumer society. She says that, like you know, women they got jobs, but now they've just doubled their work because you know they they've got to do all the home stuff and the work stuff, which is sort of true. But then not only that, certain spaces, for example, I think more and more women are single, less people are getting married or having kids because of, you know, uh, capitalism, basically. The church has gone, our communities have sort of disappeared. Institution of the family, which she says, is a box of sexual repression and a prison for women and totally wrong. She also acknowledges that there's, like, warmth and community and there's something good within this structure, which is why conservatives always want to protect it because it does still hold some humanity, but even these little structures are disappearing, which means we've all been more and more subjected to being dehumanized, mm-hmm. both men and women. And women are still in the position of having it worse than men, you know, in the hierarchy of being dehumanized. Women have a way harder, harder time than men too. So things got worse
1: in a lot of aspects. I was just thinking as you were talking about this idea of like the family disappearing, because I think family isn't disappearing, but I think family might be changing because I think that nowadays more people are embracing this idea of like your chosen family over biological or married family. So like maybe the concept of a nuclear family or like, you know, the, the family unit is in like two parents, kids, whatever is disappearing or maybe not disappearing but changing.
0: But I think people are like statistically more isolated and lonely than ever. Especially in Berlin, there are good communities and stuff, but I think if we take it on a big trend level, yeah, uh, but, people are getting more isolated.
1: But we see something specifically like it's been super prevalent in, you know, the LGBTQIA community for ages, this idea of people forming their own chosen families, and I do see a lot more of that. Happening. And maybe, yeah, we're in Berlin, we're in cities, it's a bit different. But I think that the prevalence of it, because we're in kind of like a liberal artsy bubble, right? I would argue that those are the kind of people who are more likely to move away from the sort of nuclear family. And so those are also the people who are forming their own families and their own communities in a way. Long story short, I think, yeah, that is just in our bubble, but I think also our bubble is the place where the nuclear family is more likely to evolve.
0: But do you not think that people are, because of capitalism, because that we are working more and consuming more and online more, do you not think that in general people have less human connections and less spaces where they're allowed to just be left alone by capitalism? We are being more and more colonized by capitalism and therefore our humanity is sort of...
1: Yeah, Uh, erased a hundred percent
0: but also on uh, there was an interesting point about so Susan Tontag is just like please don't wear makeup you know (laughs) and then somebody came along and said yeah but like you know now just talking about you know men and women and how we've all been like maybe men have come into this beauty space you know with with a lot more pressure than ever before as well She had a really good point. Like you're saying, she had a really positive point as well, which was saying, well, you know, for me, makeup is creative play. It's colorful. It's a nice thing you can do. And now people of different genders have got access to that. You know, you see men wearing nail polish and stuff. And I'm not entirely against that either. Like color is fine and good, you know? And then, yeah, all of this consumerism at the expense of the planet is a whole other thing, of course.
1: I think also the point of yeah men are like now engaging more with makeup and nail polish is super important but I think that it further exposes the patriarchy in a way because for example Harry Styles right who is like known for wearing makeup wearing wearing nail polish and really like you know wearing dresses and stuff the way that the general media and the world reacts to him is like he's so brave he's so amazing and he's really applauded and lifted up for doing all of these things whereas women receive backlash for wearing the same thing or for wearing makeup. So it exposes to sort of the unevenness still in the patriarchy because we applaud men for doing it while we look down on women for wearing makeup or for trans women for wearing dresses, you know? And so the way the world reacts to a cis straight man doing something and a woman or a trans woman doing something is still so incredibly different.
0: It's very interesting what Susan Sontag's solution to this is, is that she thinks that we should break down the differences between gender as much as possible. So if Harry Styles wearing makeup and, you know, nail polish is kind of good because it shows both men and women can do it. And it also shows the performative nature of gender. It highlights it. But yes, exactly what you're saying is still, like, there are those two things at play also. One of the things that everyone found in this book is that she writes about beauty a lot and she writes about beauty as a contradiction, like it's something that is sort of natural but also artificial and what I really like about her as a feminist writer is a lot of the time she goes beyond feminism. So she starts with tribes, you know, they used to make their lips as big as saucers and things like that. That used to be the standard of beauty and is changing all the time and now it's butt lifts or whatever. She doesn't talk about that because she was talking in the the 1970s. But you know what I mean? Uh, Kim Kardashian came along and changed the, the ideal of beauty. You know, it's always changing. What is it next? And in her writing, she's both repelled by it, but drawn to it. And everyone who read the book felt this sort of contradictory nature of beauty being expounded on. And there's no simple answer here. And what I really like about her as a feminist writer is even like in her discussion of, for example, what she really comes into her own with unique thoughts when she goes into a discussion of the aesthetics of fascism and then BDSM and then sexuality. And she says fascism is sexual energy contained and things like this is that she's not a simple feminist writer and she in fact called in the book which I thought was super interesting she says well feminism you know it's an ideology and like all ideologies it's simple-minded and she refuses almost to label herself as a feminist even though she clearly is you know for the cause of feminism Mm. which I really liked I found her so complex in a way she's really complex as a person and a writer too. She embraces this plurality of identity. She also never strongly identified herself as a lesbian during her life, which many people were, many lesbians were sort of a bit annoyed about because they were like, well, why are you shamed about it? But I, I don't think it's that. In fact, she says all women should be, um, should be, you know, radical lesbians in order to break the patriarchy. But I think she's also just being verbose in certain places because she's very stylistic, which is also an aesthetic thing, right, her style. But I really like that she refuses to give up nuance. And yesterday it was really interesting because we met with a lot of different women from different backgrounds and of different ages who joined a feminist book club, and we're talking about, yes, I never really identified with feminism before, but now I really see how it's important or relevant, or, you know, I'm evolving as a feminist, or this is, like, my view on feminism. And I think this is a really good book to go beyond the obvious, the simple-mindedness of what you think feminism is.
1: I thought it was really interesting that, too, a lot of the Women who came and who, you know, were talking about how they're first engaging with feminism or they're learning with feminism, they said that once they started learning about it, their first feeling was just anger. And I was like, yes, this is an emotion I can completely identify with. There's so much anger. And I think when you read this book, it makes you even angrier. And her part on fascism was mind blowing to me for a couple of reasons. One, Because I did not realize that Leni Riefenstahl had had a career after Nazism. Because I I did not learn about her in school. I learned about her at university in a class on totalitarianism and arts and censorship. Uh, If you don't know who Leni Riefenstahl is, she is a German filmmaker who basically made propaganda films for the Nazis. Her two famous movies are Triumph of the Will and Olympia, which she both made for the Nazis, just like blatantly propaganda films. And I thought that along with everyone else, she was put on trial and, like, that was it. But apparently she went on to have a career and she, like, completely rewrote her narrative and, like, repositioned herself and, like, was successful. And I was reading this, like, what the actual fuck? She was put on trial, but she
0: got off. And it's also interesting that she's a woman and she... Got away with it. You know, that's interesting as a fascist woman. But also, what Susan Sontag does is not only call her out for, you know, the blatant gaps in her biography and the lies in her biography and stuff, she makes a link which is beautiful. She makes a link between Riefenstahl's work for 1936 Olympia for the Nazis, and later on, afterwards, you know, in the 60s and 70s, she went and she photographed, she's a great photographer, she photographed tribes in Africa. And Susan Sontag makes a link between these two things and says, the underlying values of these two works of art are the same... And the underlying aesthetics are fascist. Which is a really astounding link to make. And she argues it so well. And she's of course totally right. Because she's talking about fascism as the natural end of patriarchy. Like the logical end of patriarchy for Susan Sontag is fascism. And she makes a link between fascism and repressed sexual homoerotic energy contained and like this total submission to the state as you would total submission you know in a BDSM sort of scenario to you know within leather and all this kind of stuff I mean if you live in Berlin and <laughs> you go to <laughs> Berghain or something or you know Rammstein or you know the particular German aesthetic this is really interesting and also what's what I just mentioned about her going beyond a feminist framing sometimes is, for example, the story of I um, I don't know if you know the story of O, but it's a very famous story written by an anonymous woman about submission. And um, submitting to a sexual will is kind of like, you know, you dehumanize yourself also. But Susan Sontag... She has this great line where she's like, oh, you know, we can draw all sorts of lessons from not very good material. She's saying the story of O is not very good material, but in the history of like erotic writing, it's actually a really significant work. It's like Maquis de Sade, you know, like it's, it's along this genre. And she says, well, but maybe this feeling, our sexual drive, like there's something so essential about that, that it is obliterating to our personalities and our minds anyway, like with or without feminism, it's a human psychological, the sexual drive is like this anyway and maybe that's why we have civilization from this repression of the sexual drive also comes our whole entire civilization. So she goes beyond just a feminist framing of this story, but then she keeps on coming back and forth into a feminist frame. It's just a really wide, smart feminist text.
1: Her description or, like, her analysis of fascism was unlike anything I have ever read before, specifically growing up in Germany. Fascism is always portrayed in a very specific light. And, I mean, you know, that is where fascism belongs, on the this-is-bad-side, definitely. But her description of fascism and, like, the sexual nature of fascism was something that I've never really consciously thought about. So when I was reading this, I was like, there's something so poetic about her descriptions of it. And maybe poetic is the wrong word, but I really can't think of a better word to describe it because you felt such charge to her writing and the way she describes everything in a way that you don't normally see fascism talked about.
0: I think this is part of her push and pull, the repulsion and draw towards beauty because she's she's talking about aesthetics, and aesthetics is, you know, the study of beauty, and the fascist aesthetics, like uh, how the SS
1: were dressed. Like. Yeah, you, he- you hear it a lot from older people who lived through the, you know, Third Reich, that the SS or the Nazis, they were really chic, you know? All their uniforms were designed by Hugo Boss, and they were driving Mercedes. Like, they looked stylish. Exactly, so she's
0: analyzing it, as a form of beauty but she's also anti-patriarchal and anti-fascist and all this too and there's a contradiction in it which is why I really like this book yeah and I have to say something really interesting this is what I love about the book club meeting yesterday because we had such a diverse group of people and there was one woman there from Iran and she said that she had read this book first of all in Farsi and then she reread it in English uh, when she knew that we were going to discuss it in English. And she said she noticed that in the Farsi edition, they left in all the stuff about fascism, BDSM, but then somehow they had censored the stuff about women needing to be financially free.
1: Yeah, I I made a note. I wrote independent women disturb power dynamics and then underneath censored in Iran. And that was also really fascinating
0: because she also pointed out that like women in Iran actually really like to work because they like to have that other space where they're not just, you know, seen in relation to um, their families and they have their own other space and they are good at being, you know, financially independent and earning and contributing towards the household. So she's, she was confused as to why that bit was anyway censored. But also what's a really important perspective is Because Susan Sontag is kind of saying, and, uh, you know, a lot of us in the West are like, yeah, all of our work has just increased tenfold, right? Because now you've got to have it all. And she was saying, yeah, but you're leaving out the bit where actually it's really liberating also for a woman to be able to earn their own money. And sometimes, like, we forget that, you know? Amidst all the pressure and the complaints and the capitalism. So there's a really good perspective to have.
1: It was a nice reminder that in Germany... I mean, like, in my case, being, you know, a white, straight, cisgendered woman, we are incredibly privileged. Yeah, there's still a really long way to go with feminism, 100%, definitely.
0: And then the other thing that after we finished discussing the book, we went into, like, personal things that we all do that are so deeply programmed into us as women, like the roles we play without even thinking about it. And that was a really interesting discussion too. So if you want to participate in any of those discussions in the future and you're a woman, feel free to email us, misinformed.podcast at gmail.com and we'll add you to our
1: book club invite list. On that note, here are three things you can do this week to be a better person. Thing one, read Susan Sontag's On Women. And while you're already at the bookstore, Make sure to pick up a copy of We Were Once Feminist from Riot Girl to Cover Girl, The Buying and Selling of a Political Movement by Andy Zeisler. Um, I don't know if that's how you pronounce her name in English, because she's American. I'm saying it in the German way. I apologize if that's wrong. It will be the next book we are reading for our book club. As Madvi mentioned, send us an email if you want to take part.
0: Thing two, like we did yesterday, it's always interesting to observe your own behavior. And see what role you're playing and whether you are playing like a girly role or a mothering role or things like that because of your gender. And, um, try to break those gender stereotypes because they do help us break the patriarchy.
1: And thing three. Community is incredibly important. We had such a wonderful time speaking with all these amazing women. This is not another advertisement for a book club, but I think we should all really, specifically as women, invest in our communities, in our female friendships, and really take the time to make sure we nurture them. Thank you for listening. Until next week, goodbye.
0: For all links to sources and further reading for this week's episode, subscribe to our newsletter, misinformed.substack.com
1: email us if you'd like to come on the show or join our book club misinformed.podcast at gmail.com follow us on instagram
0: at the underscore miss underscore informed
1: and support the show via patreon by going to patreon.com forward slash misinformed